Welcome to the TAGT Podcast. Come along as we work to connect the GT community and explore new ways to meet the unique needs of gifted individuals. This is the TAGT Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluchet. Today, we're chatting with Marcy Voss. Marcy Voss recently retired after 36 years in public education. During her career, she coordinated gifted and special programs in several districts, as well as served on the Commissioner's Gifted and Talented Advisory Council and the TAGT Board. Marcy currently serves as facilitator for the TAGT Emerging Leaders Program, in addition to working as an ELL coach, curriculum writer, and staff development trainer. She is also the parent of three gifted children. Marcy, we're so glad you're here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and I, obviously you bring so much to the table when it comes to uh, the, the work that you've done and the impact within TAGT. I think what we're really going to dive into um, is emergent bilingual and, and kind of the overlap there of using things like depth and complexity. And, and you bring so much wisdom there. But before we even jump into that, how, how did you get started in gifted education? What, what brings you to this world in the first place? Wow. <laughs> well, I go really far back. Um, I had the opportunity as I was a second year, second grade teacher to be asked to help start a gifted and talented program in the small district that I was in. Um, I was so excited and new and didn't know anything about it. And so I jumped at the opportunity, uh, but of course, recognized there was a lot I needed to learn. So I had the opportunity at that point to get my master's degree in gifted education at Texas A&M University, and then um, set out starting that program, um, seeking the wisdom and advice of many others. And I think that's why now as a facilitator for the Emerging Leaders Program, I'm so passionate about um, helping others is because so many people stepped up and helped me as I got started. Um, I taught in the program, it was a pullout program. I taught various grade levels, K through eight, and then coordinated um, the entire program, which eventually became a K-12 program. Um, I moved a couple of different times and my job kind of expanded. I ended up as a special programs coordinator. And as such, I was responsible for federal programs, bilingual ESL programs, and um, a number of other programs uh, at various times, dyslexia, homebound, uh, homeless students, you just name it. Um, you know, in a small district, you get to do a little bit of everything. But my passion for gifted um, emerging bilingual students um, came when I started working with that particular program. I was in Bernie ISD at the time, and um, we had actually reached that magic number of having um, 20 students who spoke the same language. In this case, it was Spanish. So we moved from an ESL program to a bilingual program, and I was tasked with doing that. So I uh, had the opportunity to take a number of teachers, and we went looking at other programs. One of the programs we saw was a two-way dual language program, and we were all enamored with that idea because in that particular program, uh, half of the class, or, or ideally half of the class, um, are English-dominant children. That's their first language. 
And the other half of the class are Spanish dominant children. That is their first language. And so each serve as native language role models to help the other learn the language. So I had the opportunity then to come back and start a two-way dual language program. As a part of doing that, I noticed uh, or we recognized that a number of those students, and initially it was our English dominant students who elected to be in the dual language program that were identified as gifted. So that presented a little bit of a dilemma for us because our model in for the program at that time for the gifted program was cluster grouping. And of course we could not cluster group those students. We did still serve them in a pullout, but I wanted to provide that enriched uh, classroom environment that our other students were receiving. So I trained all of our dual language teachers in gifted education. And what I learned was in doing that was that then they became good at noticing and identifying the students who were Spanish dominant, um, the students who had not yet acquired the English language, who were gifted. Whereas before we had not really recognized those students. Um, I don't know that we were really even seeking those students out um, in particular, although we had tried to, uh, but this became a way of really helping us identify and then begin to serve our gifted emerging uh, bilingual students. So that's how my passion started. Uh, I think actually I've even segued into another question maybe that you hadn't asked yet, but um, that's how I started in gifted education and that's how my passion began in um, serving gifted bilingual students. The other thing that happened was after I retired, I served as an EL coach at a middle school in San Antonio. And what I noticed was that um, we were not from the that program vantage point from the bilingual program vantage point there was not really a emphasis or a concern for finding and identifying the gifted bilingual students and in particular um, i found a student who i was pretty certain was gifted uh, he was in his second year in the um, in the states and was just becoming proficient in the English language, but was an amazing mathematician. And so all of the signs were there and I was able to help that district um, ensure that he was screened and identified as gifted. But again, no one else was really concerned about it except me. So again, that just fueled my passion um, in this field because I think it's a joint venture between gifted education and bilingual ESL education. Uh, and together we have, uh, or in each of those fields, there are, uh, there's expertise that's needed. And um, it's the cooperation and collaboration between the two departments that will really help us learn to identify and serve those students. Oh, and I, I think as your career is a testament to um, the connection and the collaboration that has to be there, uh, I'm sure a lot of people can resonate with that. And, and I'm wondering if we should take a half step back to kind of clarify some of the terms here. So when we're talking about when we're talking about GT and when we're talking about emergent bilingual, let's say you're a parent who's maybe new to that conversation, oh. how would you kind of classify that? And then, and how would you uh, begin to, to define maybe the overlap there where the Venn diagram kind of crosses? Oh, good question. Well, 
Um, actually, I created a working definition of a gifted multilingual student. And at the national level, we're starting to refer to those students as multilingual, even instead of emergent bilingual, um, because many of those students actually have more than one language. And so it's, it's recognizing um, the multiple languages that the students have. Um, at the national level, there's federal definitions for uh, both gifted students and for um, multilingual, or really, I think they're still referred to as English learners in the law. Um, but one of the things that um, that comes from the law is that, an, an, um, and where I've put these together is using parts of the definition that I'll explain. So a emergent bilingual student is a student who is age three to 21 and not born in the United States or whose native language is a language other than English. And there's many other parts to that definition, but it then goes on to say that they need services to develop the language skills necessary to meet the challenging state academic standards, achieve in classrooms where the language of instruction is English and participate fully in society. So bottom line, um, they are not proficient. These are students who are not yet proficient in English and require services so they can develop that language proficiency. And of course, our gifted students and the definition at the national level says that these are students who give evidence of high achievement capability in areas such as intellectual, creative, artistic, or leadership capacity, or in specific academic fields. But that definition also go on, goes on to say that these students need services or activities not ordinarily provided by the school in order to fully develop those high achievement capabilities. So again, those are students who have the potential for high achievement, um, but they need services to fully develop that potential. So when you put those two together, what we're saying is a gifted multilingual student has that evidence of high achievement capability, but they were um, they their native language is not yet developed, and they need both sets of services. They need services that to fully develop those high achievement capabilities, and they need services to develop the language skills necessary to achieve. So I think that's where those two fields cross over. Uh, it's in the service component. The students have both sets of characteristics and they have both sets of needs. And that's why I think that collaboration and um, involvement from both of the fields is so important. That, that makes a lot of sense. And as you're kind of making those connections, I, I, you know, I, I wonder you know, if most people really resonate with that and say, okay, I, I see the need there. But I also, as an extension off that, how are we doing with, um, with seeing that and responding to that? That, that might be where the uh, complications come in. So can you kind of maybe give us a snapshot of what does that look like at a practical level for districts? How do they move into that space or, or, or what can we be doing? All right, well, unfortunately the research says that we are not doing well we are not identifying uh, at a proportionate level the numbers of students who are gifted and have language needs. Um, over and over, the research has supported that. Um, there's numerous studies, and I can go into that, but I'm not certain that that's the, the area right now. But I think um, the, the thing that we need to focus on now is um, recognizing what barriers there are uh, with identification 
and looking at what research says are promising practices that we can implement. Because I think once we are cognizant of those things, um, there are some things that actually are very easily done. And then there are some things that are going to take some work um, to change in our identification system and to even to address services. Um, I think right now the focus is on identification, but once we start identifying the students, then we also need to really consider services because typically our gifted program services do not incorporate language acquisition. Um, and our services for students who are acquiring the language do not incorporate uh, opportunities for students to use higher level thinking skills. So there's gonna need to be a discussion about that as well. And, uh, I do have some ideas. I've, I've done a little bit of the research. I can share with you some of the barriers and promising practices, if you wish, um, and can also talk about services that I see might be beneficial. Yeah, I, I would love to get into that. And, and I guess when it comes to maybe some of the barriers or maybe just some things, if, you're, if maybe you're a GT coordinator listening to this and as you're kind of evaluating your ID process, yeah, what are maybe some things to keep in mind there to uh, make sure that we are are seeing potential in these students. Sure. Well, let me just kind of walk through a few of the barriers at each of the um, um, stages of identification, because I think it even begins at pre-referral. Um, what, what research has found is that usually there is a lack of understanding about characteristics of gifted multilingual students. Um, we do a good job in the field of gifted education of training teachers on what to look for in the general ed population, but we don't always share the specific characteristics of our gifted multilingual students and maybe even students uh, of other cultures, of other backgrounds, students in poverty, et cetera. Uh, we're not always good at looking at the specific characteristics and sharing information about the specific characteristics of specific populations of students. And so in this case, our gifted multilingual students. And I think that's something that's an easy fix. We can just start incorporating that information. The second thing has to do with um, the groups that are receiving the information. So not only do we need to train our gen ed teachers, but we need to train in this case, our, our teachers who are working with our bilingual and ESL students, they need to receive that same training and need to be looked at as a talent scout. Um, that's something that um, I've heard from Dale Sigley um, from the National um, Association for Gifted Education. So wait a minute, I'm getting that. I always get the acronym, acronym wrong. NCGRE, I believe yeah. is what it is. Anyway. Um, yeah. We have a few acronyms in education. I know, don't we? <laughs> anyway, um, he speaks about, and his the research team has done a lot of work at uh, UConn, talk about the um, teachers as being a talent scout. How what we really need to do at the pre-referral stage is helping our teachers, equipping them with the information to help them become talent scouts. And so another thing we can do for our gen ed teachers is give them a greater understanding of the language acquisition process. Uh, again, that's something that we don't typically provide, that it, we don't provide training for our gen ed teachers and helping them understand how students acquire language and the stages that they go through. Um, so they're not fully aware of what, you know, giftedness might look like in that language acquisition process. 
There's also some barriers in terms of biases. Um, sometimes there's an unwillingness to refer students until they are English proficient. Um, or even in, in both populations, both our gen ed population and sometimes even in our bilingual population of teachers, we have a deficit-based mindset and we're focusing on the weaknesses as opposed to the strengths. And I don't think it's really um, that teachers set out to do that. Um, I think by nature we're helpers and we look for ways to help. So we help by finding places where we can help, which means that I think we're geared towards looking for weaknesses. It, it seems to be the natural thing to do, but we, that's an area where we can really work on in that pre-referral process is changing that mindset so that we're not focusing on the weaknesses, but we're really looking for the strengths and what students bring to us. The other thing we can really focus on at that stage is making sure we have culturally responsive curriculum um, so that students are feeling comfortable in responding. Um, in terms of barriers at referral, you know, obviously um, one of the barriers, barriers might be um, that referral, pro, um, referral might be a narrow group. Uh, we don't often uh, solicit referrals from our bilingual ESL teachers, for example. Um, the other thing that happens sometimes here too is that um, sometimes nomination forms and checklists are used. And these forms and checklists usually uh, favor the dominant culture. So for example, uh, one of the characteristics that we look for is asks many questions. Well, if we have a student who's not yet English proficient, they're not going to be asking many questions. In fact, they may be even in a period of uh, language production called the silent period where they're not really producing much language at all. Um, secondly, there's cultural um, uh, implications there as well. Many cultures um, defer to authority and uh, would view that asking many questions as being, um, um, what am I trying to say, rude. In other words, very rude for the student to do. So um, we need to be careful about the checklists and the nomination forms that we're using um, in that process. Then there's a ton of barriers at the assessment point. Um, we know that standardized testing is um, not um, a way to really go about finding students um, who have do not have language proficiency. Sometimes the test is given in the weaker or non-native language. Um, even when it's given in the native language, sometimes the students do not have the academic Spanish that's required on the assessments. If we have students who are coming with interrupted schooling, um, they'll have lack of background knowledge. And so they're, they're, they, there's gaps in their understanding. So achievement tests do not show their ability. Uh, sometimes the tests are culturally biased. And even though nonverbal tests are better, they're really not, I wouldn't say that silver bullet. Um, for example, um, even the, the uh, diagrams sometimes in the pictures can be somewhat culturally biased. For example, if there's a picture of a mailbox on the assessment, even if it's a nonverbal assessment, uh, students who come from countries in which there's no mail um, that's 
um, you know, there are no mailboxes, they're not going to understand what that is. So bottom line, um, we have to be very careful about the assessments we use and how we interpret those. And of course, then um, norming is a whole other issue. Um, we are, we know the problems with um, national norming. Um, but even if we find a test that does purport to um, really address our multilingual students, we have to really carefully look at that population of students that they used in that norming population. You know, were they students that, are they just culturally different or were they linguistically different? You know, there's all of those kinds of things as well. And of course, some of the, um, the ways around those assessment problems are to do um, universals. Well, to, ways around the referral issue is the universal screening and ways around the assessment is to look at other kinds of assessments um, and to not just um, focus solely on the uh, standardized assessments. Um, in terms of promising practices, um, one of the things that really I have found over and over and over again, uh, even the most recent publication uh, where Scott Peters and others um, in Gifted Child Quarterly address this issue, um, they pretty much are all in agreement about this one concept of the importance of what they, and it's called different things for in, uh, by different people, but the idea of uh, providing a preparation program, Sometimes it's called front loading, but the key here is, is talent development. And it's really important to implement in our schools a talent development program and process so that in the regular classroom, wherever these students are, they are receiving curriculum that gives them opportunities to think in in-depth complex ways, to think at the higher level, develop the talents and the skills that they have. So that when we come to the process of um, identifying those students, they're, they're prepared and ready to show what they can do. Um, I've already talked about the importance of professional learning and that really occurs at all levels. Um, a lot of this can be solved uh, with communication and collaboration. So if we let our bilingual department share with our gifted department information about language acquisition, then, they get, then our gift department learns that information. If we let our gifted department share information about uh, gifted characteristics and needs with our bilingual department, then they learn that information. So just collaborating in that way is, is a way to really get that professional learning accomplished. Another thing that can happen, though, is that oftentimes our bilingual ESL um, programs have successful um, relationships with the parents. They already have parent opportunities going on. So we can piggyback and partnership with um, our bilingual department as they are providing their parent interaction and their parent involvement sessions. We can provide our information on gifted education through their programs. So there's a lot we can do really if we just sit down and put our heads together and see how we can help each other out. Um, I referred to universal screening and um, Usually that means giving an assessment to all students like across the board, like at a grade level, but it doesn't have to be an assessment. Um, it could be, for example, collecting portfolios, collecting student work samples across that grade level. Or as um, Celeste Sodergren said yesterday in a presentation that I heard by her, it, if you're doing any kind of um, benchmark pre-assessment, that can almost be used as a universal screening. But the idea of looking at all students in that process and looking at who are your top performers and then incorporating those top performers in the further assessment that you do.
there's a ton of non-traditional assessments and some that we haven't really done um, a lot of work on. Something that uh, I'm kind of intrigued by is the idea of dynamic assessment. And in dynamic assessment, you uh, pre-assess and then you teach and then you post-assess. And what you do is you look for the rate of learning during that teaching process. In other words, you compare pre and post tests and then look at who are the students that are learning the most in that short period of teaching as a way to identify uh, students who have the potential to learn. Another thing that is a real easy thing to do uh, is look at language learning rates. We can um, incorporate TELPAS scores into our GT assessment process and look at the rate in which they're learning. Um, we expect our English learners to achieve one level each year, but we oftentimes have kids who achieve two levels in one year. So those are the kids you want to look at, those that are learning the language quickly. And as I've already talked about, there's uh, portfolios and even performance-based assessments too. So really, I think for this population of students, it's, it's looking at a greater collection of information and maybe even providing some alternate processes uh, and pathways for assessment. And then of course, there's um, the whole idea if you're using teacher and parent rating forms and making sure that they are culturally appropriate. Um, many in the field of gifted education see the value of local norms. And that basically means rather than comparing students of scores to a national group, you're comparing the students at that campus to the other students at that campus to see which students are your top performers. And that is a way of us identifying our gifted English learners as well, because the state even says in the definition, uh, when we're looking for our gifted students, they're students who have high achievement capability compared to others of like experience, age, and environment. So really if we're looking at, we're comparing by age, experience, and environment, we want to be comparing to like students. And that really even means looking at language proficiency. You're comparing beginner students who are beginning in their language proficiency to others who are at the beginning stage in their language proficiency, not even to students who are at later stages of language proficiency. So there's some nuances there. And again, that's why um, our bilingual department can help us with that. Uh, they know how to tease out those nuances. And then finally, there's a whole um, importance of parent community outreach and involvement. Um, our bilingual um, ESL parents typically do not get information on gifted education, nor do they are they really taught the importance of uh, providing services to their gifted students. So there's much that we can do in terms of sharing information with those parents and uh, reaching out to them too. So by looking at those promising practices, um, there are some that are really easy to do. We can kind of start immediately. And then there are some that we may want to incorporate over time. But if we can incorporate all of the promising practices into our identification system, then we can do the best job that we know of at this point in identifying our students. So it seems like that you know, there are some ideas and answers and research-based perspective to move into this space to address this, but it seems like a great place to start is to review our ID process, see what's going on there, um, and, 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 and maybe even trying to uh, lean on some of these answers, try out some of these things that we know will find these students. And, you know, I really appreciated what you brought up when it came to the definition of, of gifted and talented as well from TEA. 
you know, because that's one thing we might debate the definition between you and I or whomever, but, you know, TEA, I love that you said that it says in there that high level of accomplishment for GT students when compared to others of the same age experience or environment. And I would even go backwards a little bit on it because it says students or a child or youth performing at or showing the potential for performing at. Yes. So if you're someone who's going in saying, hey, uh, they, they cannot speak the language and you've made up this, this sort of thing that says they can't be GT because that or whatever. Well, this clearly says if they have the potential for getting there, there's room to identify and to serve that student to access that potential. So, so I feel like there's, there's a lot of ideas to move into that space. And, and I would say it's the expectation of the state as well. Would, would you agree? Totally, totally. And I am seeing um, more recently, I have seen greater concern both um, from in our field of gifted education as well as in our field of uh, bilingual education. Um, in particular, I've had an opportunity, um, kind of a very fortuitous opportunity to, mil- to meet Nilda Aguirre, who is the executive director for the National Association for Bilingual Education. And I don't know if you know this, but as I was really looking at research that looked at um, characteristics of gifted multilingual students, one of the um, documents that I found really helpful was published by the Iowa Department of Education. I want to say it was back in 2009, um, but it was a publication that was on identifying, and at that point, they called them gifted English language learners. But that document referenced something called Project Gotcha. And Project Gotcha was a Title VII project that was funded back in the 1980s for the purpose of identifying and serving our gifted uh, English language learners. As it turns out, in talking to Nilda, she was the co-director of Project Gotcha, and um, oh. which is sounds so crazy, but she in particular has a, a heart for gifted education. Um, she led this program for many years, helped implement in 35 states, and I've forgotten how many countries, um, but she is a real advocate for gifted education. And actually, um, I've had the opportunity to work with her now on the uh, Gifted and Talented Special Interest Group for NABI. And we are making a concerted effort to get out information to the bilingual population. In other words, the teachers, parents, um, administrators that work with bilingual ESL programs so that they have that information. And um, I had an opportunity to present at the last um, NABE conference and collected names of people that were in my session and ended up with, I don't know, um, there were, I did a couple of sessions. So I ended up with close to maybe 60 names of, of people who have an interest who gave me their email and said, I want to I I want to be involved. I want to know more. I want to serve, identify and serve these students. So I'm seeing a real interest um, now in both fields in identifying and serving these students. So that's very encouraging. I think we're all learning together. Right. I think so. And and I do, you know, you you said it a few times in terms of um, capturing the attention and the support of the families of these emergent bilingual students is, is so important. I, uh, anecdotally, there's been times when, when I've been a part of screening a student where uh, a flyer will go home or, or a letter explaining, hey, uh, we would love your permission to screen a student for gifted and talented. And there's not a, an understanding of what that means in terms yes. of what does a label bring? 
What do the services end up doing? It's almost as if it, it could be perceived as a negative thing of, oh no, my students being screened for something that may, that may, that might mean something to someone that's different than, than someone else. So I'd imagine okay. if you're able to rally a community around the benefits of this, that you, you could have a great impact. I think so. I really think so. Um, and sometimes, you know, parents even deny services because they think that it's going to keep them from learning English. So many parents are very, um, of our bilingual students are very um, concerned. They want their students to learn the English language. And if, you know, if participating in a program takes them out of the regular classroom, then they, they would be very concerned that that might be a detriment, just as you said their student rather than a benefit. Well, that's, that's powerful. And just knowing that we have um, teachers and parents who are, are learning and going along on this journey and saying, okay, there's a, a emergent bilinguals out there that uh, have this potential that's described as appropriate for GT services. Oh, what can I do? Where do I go? How do I, uh, maybe if I'm their general ed teacher or, or whatever, how do I start to, to build this potential that we're talking about here? And part of your work is taking this information and, and putting it through the lens of depth and complexity. Yes. Uh, what led you to the, uh, that connection there? And, and how do you think that could really benefit serving these students? Well, thank you for asking. Um, I had worked for many, many years. Um, and I, I'm so old, I actually heard Sandra Kaplan talk about her model of depth and complexity back in the 1990s. And when she was doing demonstration schools in Texas, and I had been told as a gifted teacher for many years that I needed to be teaching in a way that presented content in more in-depth, complex ways to my students. But it was also, it was so esoteric, it needs to be more in-depth, more complex, and no one really ever told you how. So I was so excited when I heard her share her model of depth and complexity, because to me that provided the, the piece that was missing, the how to. And once I learned about the icons or the elements of depth and complexity, then I could manipulate those things. I could incorporate them in my curriculum and instruction to make sure that I truly was helping my students uh, think in more in-depth, complex ways about the curriculum. So I um, have always, in the field of gifted education, uh, been an adamant supporter of depth and complexity. I think it's the one thing that we truly can do that takes our curriculum above and beyond projects that um, are, that could even sometimes end up being cutesy. Um, it, it really provided an opportunity for uh, that rigor that sometimes is missing in gifted programs. So um, on the side, I'd always been working with depth and complexity, but um, my um, work in gift in instruction, you know, started, as I mentioned, a little bit later in my career. Um, and I've recently had an opportunity um, to really to do training for teachers. Um, with another company um, that's the teachers are solely those that are working with bilingual ESL, emerging bilingual students uh, on second language acquisition. And one of the things that we learned is that um, there's an approach to teaching second language acquisition that was developed by Stephen Crash in the 1980s um, called sheltered instruction. And basically teachers using this approach um, use second language acquisition strategies while they're delivering content area instruction. And so this became a real 
emphasis in Texas in our ESL programs where the uh, instruction is in English, but the students need to acquire the language. And so we have to provide a, um, an instruction that uh, helps them with this. And so the goals of shelter and instruction really are to make the content comprehensible while the students develop the academic language. And there are a number of strategies that are common to all models of sheltered instruction. Things like using pictures and providing hands-on interactive uh, activities, um, using sentence frames and models. Well, the whole idea of sentence frames was intriguing to me because years ago, I helped develop um, what are called the Q3 cards for depth and complexity. And the Q3 cards are question stems that are developed such that when you use that stem, you're incorporating one of the icons or elements of depth and complexity. And for many years, I had been teaching teachers how to use these questions as a way to integrate depth and complexity in their classroom. Well, it just dawned on me one day, I think when I was working with the um, teachers on sheltered instruction, that I thought, oh my goodness, these are sentence stems that students use for the response. So all I need to do is structure the sentence stem response, and I can get the students to use higher level in-depth complex thinking, the icons of depth and complexity. So it just is like one of those light bulb moments where you thought, where I thought, oh my goodness, this works, this goes together. Uh, teachers ask a question, students respond. You just ask the question that incorporates depth and complexity and incorporate those items in the response to get the students to respond that way. But the cool thing about this using the sentence stems is that um, that really provides so uh, not only support for our um, learners as they're getting started in writing, but it allows us to incorporate the academic language that the students need to learn about the content. So in other words, in using, for example, a sentence stem, I can focus on the academic language of the content. I can really uh, provide that scaffolding that students need to help them effectively communicate and think and complete thoughts, and I can get them to think at the higher levels. So for example, um, maybe I was asking this question, um, that's a, um, a big idea question. You know, what is one generalization that summarizes, and that would be the part of the question stem. And then the other part of the question stem is the content. So let's say in this case, it's how living organisms within an ecosystem interact with one another and their environment. So all I needed to do is to turn that question into a sentence stem. So students would respond by saying one generalization that summarizes how living organisms within an ecosystem interact with one another and their environment is. And so by getting them to do that, I'm really focusing not only on that thinking skill of creating that generalization, but also I, they're practicing the academic language. And um, Ditro and Moran talk about, there's two parts to academic language. They call them brick words and mortar terms. And the brick words are the words that we probably recognize as um, the academic vocabulary when we usually think of it. So in this case, in that sentence, it was living organism, ecosystem, environment. It's my science words that students need to know. But there are also mortar terms, and mortar terms are the connecting words, and sometimes those are equally challenging for our students who are learning the language. 
English. So for example, in my in this case, in that sentence, interact is a mortar term. That might be a word that our uh, students who are learning a language do not know. So not only if not only am I getting them to think at the higher level, I'm getting them to learn those academic science vocabulary words, as well as the other academic vocabulary mortar terms that they're needing to know. So to me, it's like a big bang for your buck. You know, you're with one simple thing by asking a question and providing a sentence stem, you can do so much at the same time. So it just, again, that realization hit me one day and I thought, oh my gosh, this is something simple for teachers to do. It's just teaching them how to do that. And then of course you use those sentence stems in a, a variety of hands-on activities. So you could use them in a turn and talk activity. You could use them in a, um, some other kinds of activities that teachers normally use in our bilingual ESL classrooms. Um, there's something called conga line where they form two lines and interact with each other. Inside outside circle is a similar thing, but they're doing forming circles. Um, there's some other um, question structured conversation um, frames that we use in our uh, with our bilingual ESL students. Uh, something called QSSSA is um, a, a structured conversation frame that was developed by um, John Seiglitz and Bill Perryman. And it's something that we teach in the training I was doing. I taught that all the time. Well, I simply, the Q is for a question and one of the S's is for providing a sentence stem. So there you go. I just ask that depth and complexity question and I provide a stem that incorporates depth and complexity as well as the academic language as a part of that structured conversation. So there are so many ways, ticket out the door, free ride, um, so many ways that we can have students use the sentences. But even if they're not using sentences, we can still have them focus on depth and complexity when we use other forms of sheltered instruction. Uh, so for example, when we use graphics, uh, we might have the students analyze to find patterns in those graphics or, um, if we are looking at realia or real objects, we could look for um, details in those real objects. So we can incorporate really depth and complexity with any form of sheltered instruction. And the best thing is these, the teachers in our bilingual department, our ESL department are already doing sheltered instruction. You don't have to teach them that. All you have to do is teach them depth and complexity and show them how to integrate it. Our people in our gifted department are already doing most of the time depth and complexity. All you have to do is teach them how to incorporate sheltered instruction. So again, that's where both of these fields, if they just come together, can help support each other. And it's not rocket science. It's, it's really easy to do. It just takes uh, some time um, maybe to learn the one thing you don't know and then try to figure out how to put it together. Um, but it's, it's, it's very easily learned and it's um, the sky is the limit. What teach, once teachers know how to do this, there's an endless supply of ideas and ways that they can use it in their classroom. The teacher does get to be in control of what's taught to the students. Um, this just provides the, the, the how, not the what. Which I'm sure that how is very important for um, teacher buy-in 
to get to show them, hey, this is um, this is a doable thing, and here's some resources to be able to do that. Um, yes, you wrote in an, in an article in Tempo about the advantages of this. You you found that the use of depth and complexity prompts positively affected both gifted and non gifted students' understanding across the disciplines. Uh, though GT students appear to be uh, even greater understanding, and that both gifted and non gifted students, when using uh, depth and complexity, perceive the prompts to be helpful, interesting, and challenging. Uh, so not only is this meeting the needs of emerging bilingual and GT students, it, it, it seems like there's potential for this to be fun and engaging as well. Yes. And actually, Michael, where I'm really going with all of this is I think this is the answer to front loading. This could be the talent development program. If we teach teachers who are in gen ed classrooms or even in bilingual classrooms, wherever our students are who are emergent bilingual students, if we incorporate this kind of instruction across the board, and although we use this in our gifted program um, to meet the needs of our gifted students, the whole model of depth and complexity can be used in, with any student. I've seen it used with special ed kids. Matter of fact, that demonstration school that I went to, that was one of the things that blew my mind. There was a special ed classroom where the teacher was using depth and complexity. So the, um, the whole idea of depth and complexity is it, it provides a framework where students can use their own thinking and take it to the level that they are capable of. So if we can provide this um, type of curriculum in the gen ed classroom, all students can grow and develop and learn according to their own rates. And when we give them opportunities to think, then we are better able to see the kind of thinking that they can do so we can identify the gifted students in that group. But meanwhile, every kid in the classroom benefits. Every kid. Which kid do we not want to teach to think? Absolutely. Wow. Okay. So this, so this is a, a huge help and it provides a lot of clarity and and let's say you're a parent or a teacher listening to this discussion, where do I get started? You know, sometimes depth and complexity can feel um, overwhelming because it, it, there's just so much to it. Uh, how would you uh, recommend someone moving into that space? Oh, good question. Well, I'm hoping actually, uh, I'm hoping to help. <laughs> um, I have to share this with you. I learned, um, I took a writing online writing webinar um, and there was a gentleman by the name of Alan Arnold and he defined creativity in a way that really helped me rethink my own conceptions about creativity. What he said was God infused creativity is using our presence and our gifting or our gifts to bring something new into existence in a way that changes people and the atmosphere for good. So I, I have um, written a book. It's not, um, it, it's not published yet. It probably won't be published in the next spring, but I, I, everything that I told you today, I've written out in that book. And I'm hope my purpose is it would be an easy place for teachers to get started. But in the meantime, um, there are some things you can do, just Google, depth and complexity on the internet. Um, Jay Taylor Education provides lots of training. Um, I do training for him. I do training for other teachers. I do training with Sidelets Education uh, where I can show teachers how to do this. 
Um, I mentioned the uh, Q3 cards, but I've also developed something called talk cards, uh, which are sentence stems tied to depth and complexity, um, also published by Jay Taylor Education. Um, but gosh, uh, I've got some just free handouts. I'm, if anybody's interested, I'm happy to share. I, I'm not trying to sell. Honestly, I'm retired. My career really kind of, you know, I'm not out to make a name for myself. I think what I'm out to do is um, to pay back all those people who helped me. And if I can, in the process, to leave a, leave a legacy of helping others. So if anybody wants to contact me, my email is boss, my last name, B-O-S-S-M, the number 57 at gmail.com. And I'm happy to share um, anything that I have to kind of help you get started as well. Well, knowing your role or how you've been able to help with TAGT in the Emergent um, Leaders Program, I, I think it speaks to in your work, obviously, here as, as kind of experienced in this conversation today. It's pretty clear you have a huge heart um, for, this, uh, for this domain, for gifted education, for helping others. And, and it sure does seem like you're reaching that goal as it is of, of helping. And, and I feel like this conversation is a huge encouragement. I hope it is to any teachers or parents out there looking to serve these students really well. And I think you made some great connections along the way with that. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's start to wrap this up. And uh, as I do with each podcast, I got a, a fast five, uh, five quick yet challenging questions to wrap up our discussion. Okay. Hopefully leave us convicted to learn more about the very dimensions of giftedness so, uh, or gifted education. So are you ready? I think so. <laughs> All right. I'm putting you on the spot here. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are some areas from your perspective where gifted education falls short? I think right now we are still learning how to best identify and serve students who are in special populations. Um, I've mentioned my passion um, which is students who are learning the language, uh, are gifted emergent bilingual students. Um, but there's some other groups as well. Um, students who are, uh, students who are coming from poverty. Um, we're still not great with students who are twice exceptional. Uh, I think we're, we're still needing to reach those populations of students. Absolutely, all right. See, you're doing great already after question. <laughs> Uh, and this is a pretty broad question, but I find it really uh, encouraging when we're talking about our field and the work that we do, but uh, name someone who has inspired you. Oh my goodness, there are so many people, but I think um, someone who truly does <clears throat> continue to inspire me is Susan Johnson, Dr. Susan Johnson. Um, I met her very early in my career, and um, I had an opportunity to take a course from her when she taught at UT. And she is someone who I've reached out to over the years. And this has been, when I'm saying years, I'm talking like 30, 40 <laughs> years. Um, who's someone who I've reached out to at many times to ask for help. And she has never once turned me down. She's always given me um, and, and all the time I needed has gone above and beyond sharing resources, sharing ideas, getting information for me. And to this day, um, she still does that for me. Um, she's also retired. And so as a, um, a model for me, here's someone who in retirement who continues to contribute greatly 
to the field. Um, she's not resting on her laurels and that that's a model as well. So um, she's someone who I would like to emulate um, and it has a kind heart as well. I'll echo that. I ran into her at a TAGT gift ed conference and she gave me part of her time to talk about how I can improve services and sent me an email following that up. So yeah, um, yeah huge impact. Amazing. Uh, yes. All right. How about to outside of your upcoming book? What about a book recommendation for our audience to maybe uh, learn a little bit more, whether it's about uh, GT or emergent bilingual, or maybe just something that's really helped you in your journey? Oh, wow. Well, there is a, a book that, um, that I think I would recommend for GT teachers if they're wanting to learn more about how to meet the needs of our emerging bilingual students, um, give some real practical examples of ways um, that that can be done. And the most recent edition really incorporates um, higher level thinking, how to bump up what's done in those, they call it step it up, um, but ideas for stepping up what's going on in our bilingual ESL classrooms. But I think even for our gifted teachers, this would give them a window into um, working with, if they had a gifted emergent bilingual students, a student, and it's called Seven Steps to a Language Rich Interactive Classroom, and it's the second edition. Three questions in, you're doing great. We got two left here. Uh, tell me about a student who wasn't identified as GT that you saw potential in? And, and what I'm finding with asking this question um, is that it's pretty fascinating. You know, uh, obviously in, in GT identification is important, but, you know, ultimately, like, like you said, we're talent scouts here and seeing that potential. But is there a student that kind of comes to mind uh, who maybe wasn't identified but showed that potential and maybe even realized that potential? Well, I think the student who comes to mind is the one that I was talking about uh, earlier. It was the eighth grade student who was in his second year in U.S. schools in a math classroom. And what I saw was the student, even though he didn't understand all of the language, would uh, could comprehend quickly and easily, primarily, I think, because math is more visual. The teacher did a great job of making her um, curriculum, very uh, visual and interactive. She incorporated many of the strategies that we use for sheltered instruction. And, but he was the first student finished oftentimes in doing his work. Um, I could see him helping a student next to him, even though again, he didn't quite have the language. He, was, he had a, um, a heart you know, for helping others learn. Um, he did not ask many questions because he, again, didn't have that language proficiency, but you could see by the work he was doing, he could make quick uh, connections quickly and easily. Um, he understood the concepts and understood them at an, in an advanced way. And again, you, you couldn't tell as much from the language. You had to really look at his work you had to look at the speed in which he was acquiring the information and using it. Um, but all of those things really helped me uh, realize that he truly was or is gifted. Um, it was just something that the teacher had to spend some time and needed to, you know, to know what to look for to be able to recognize that. 
Yeah. And I think that's a great kind of example of, of, of what teachers can learn from just so they can do that on their own. And uh, our last question here uh, is a fill in the blank. The best way to foster students' potential is? <laughs> okay. I'm going to say, this is, this is the first thing that came to mind. Love them. Mm. Love them. When you love the student, you will do what is best for them. And different thing, different children have different needs. So I don't know that it's any like one strategy or one idea, but um, students know when you love them. Um, and, and let me just give you this example. Um, you know, I mentioned that I started out as a second year teacher forming this gifted program. And one of my very first students was a very gifted young man. Um, and I really struggled to challenge him. I, I didn't, you know, know a lot at that point and um, I did the best I could, but he was one of those kids who I kind of always felt like I failed. Well, actually a couple of years ago uh, at a funeral, I had an opportunity to see him and he's now 40 something years old. So he's, he's not a kid anymore. Um, but we were talking and I said, you know, Scottson, I said, I really want to apologize to you. I said, I don't think that I really met your needs as a gifted teacher. I don't think that I really provided the challenge that you needed. And he said, but Ms. Voss, you cared. And we knew you cared. And that to me, I think was the biggest gift and the biggest realization that when you care, students understand and um, they'll forgive you. Those, <laughs> those things <laughs> that you, you know, your shortcomings. Uh, but they know that you love them. So I think that's the greatest thing you can do. And, um, you know, in the process, learn all those other little techniques and strategies and ideas. But the most important thing is to love them and care for them. And in doing that, you'll learn how to meet their needs. Amazing. And I've loved our conversation here today. Uh, you reviewed a little bit of it, but just for the sake of uh, as we close things out, uh, where can people find you uh, maybe on social media or I guess that we know your email now, but what's the best way to reach out to Marcy Voss? Um, oh my goodness. Okay. My Twitter handle is Voss M 57. Um, I don't post a lot, but I need to get better at that. Um, I, as I mentioned, my email is something that um, probably the easiest way to connect with me. Um, and I'll just repeat that Voss M and again, that's B is in victory. It's hard to sometimes, sometimes says boss. I used to let my kids think that boss. I miss boss. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's B is in victory, OSSM57 at gmail.com. Um, and then um, I have written a few things. I have a few podcasts out there as well. So if you just search me on the internet, you might be able to find something else that I've done. Amazing. Thank you so much. We're so thankful that uh, you, you were a, a part of this conversation today, uh, Marcy. And uh, uh, thanks again to our guest. Uh, we're so glad you could join us. If you're interested in learning more about today's guests and their work, check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting txgifted.org and clicking on the Join tab. Renduli Learning is proud to support the Texas Association for the Gifted, their podcast and gifted education nationwide. 
be sure to visit our website at RanzuliLearning.com and sign up for your free trial to experience firsthand how we deliver a rigorous, personalized learning environment for all students pre-K through 12, and how we align our resources to the TEKS and provide student-driven project-based learning that unpacks the natural passions and abilities in all children.